0: Well, hopefully you're in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, and the title of today's message is Reluctance. At one time or another, all of us come to a point of reluctance. When we are asked to do something that we know is right, and yet we do not do it, because we are reluctant to do so. That reluctance means uh, defined as you know, not eager to do it, or unwilling, or no enthusiasm to do what we are being asked to do. And unfortunately that reluctance all too often comes in our in the midst of our relationship with God. And this morning we are going to find a reluctant individual in the person of Moses. He has been commissioned, God has spoken to him directly, God has given him promises, and yet at this point he is reluctant. He is reluctant to move forward. And this morning we are going to explore the reason for his reluctance. Now I know that each and every one of us here in some way, in some at some time, have struggled with reluctance when it comes to our relationship with God. God has may have asked you to do something and you've been reluctant to do it. Something's hindered you from being obedient to what God has asked you clearly to do Through his word. Again, though, often we do not understand the reason for our reluctance. The famous author Oz Guinness once said that there are two minds in which a person can walk one mind that is devoted to believing something to be true. Once an individual has come to the position that they know that something is true, they are at one mind, they're in one mind, they are set to know that that fact is true. In the same Case, there's also one mind in the fact that something may be rejected or considered false or untrue. The problem with reluctance is that reluctance has us in a position between those two mindsets that we keep continuously vacillating and going back and forth within. Walking within a two mindset, which is always problematic. But we don't often explore the reason for that reluctance. We know that it's there. We see that it is there. It is often displayed for us in the Bible, but we never really come to a point where we analyze it and come to the conclusion of why it is happening. And once we do that, then we can get past that reluctance. And I think this is such an important topic for today, and here's why. In higher education today, there is a comfort with allowing everything to be uncertain or unknowable. For example, anything that requires faith. And now even those things that are tangible that we can confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt, we still want to say that there's ambiguity to allow us to remain in a place of uncertainty. And for some reason, one of the most intellectual decisions that can be made or uh, descriptions or answers that can be given is, I don't know, or we cannot know for sure. That seems to be the answer for many of life's questions today. We just can't know for sure. Young people today, though... Since everything trickles down, and, 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 and now we see a mindset of the younger generation here in America, there is a lot of unclarity concerning, can we know if anything is certain? Can we know if anything is true? Can we know if anything is real? Can we really know? It's almost we have fostered an entire generation to live within the vacillation of reluctancy. Reluctancy. As Christians, we allow ourselves to move into certainty on the basis of faith. But today, faith, being a subjected item of itself, doesn't allow people to move into certainty. How can I know for sure? How can I be certain about anything? And here we will have an example of Moses speaking to God directly and we see him vacillating in this incredible gulf of reluctancy. God said, I will be with you. You're going to go on my authority and Moses, I'm even going to tell you what's going to happen once you get there. The people are going to respond to you and Pharaoh's going to reject you. Well, God... Can we really be sure about that? And the reluctancy is posed to us in two words that we find in our very first verse of chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 in detail, and then we're going to give some examples, 18 through 31, of how God encouraged Moses to get past this reluctancy. The word that we find here in verse 1 that is repeated twice in the New King James Bible which I think is an accurate representation of the Hebrew that is being given in here, is the word suppose. In other versions, you may have the word behold. And I think that's a little inaccurate. Because a hypothetical question is being posed to God by Moses here. And in that hypothetical question, we have those two words that stumble so many people from being obedient to God, moving forward in their relationship with the Lord and that is the two words of what if. God asks you to trust him and we reply, but God, what if? Right? How many are already tracking with me? Yeah, I'm I'm already there. This is me. Yeah. God says, I shall supply all your needs. We reply with, but God, what if? Well, God, suppose, you know. Now, this is already after in verse 18 of chapter 3, God told him exactly what was going to happen, but wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sufficient to bring Moses to a place where he was confident in what God was commissioning him to do, And we find him now in a position of reluctance before God. And then we see God gently move him from that point until Moses, and the third time of uh, declaring his reluctancy, angers the Lord. Angers the Lord because of his reluctancy. Let's begin in verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Oh, God, but what if? I know you've told me that you're with me, Lord. I know this whole burning bush that's not being consumed is really, really cool. Definitely displays your glory and your power. But what if, God, you happen to be wrong? Don't you love that? Suppose, Lord, what if they do not believe me or will not listen to my voice or state that you have not appeared to me? Initially, God replies and responds graciously, allowing Moses to be moved to a place of assurity, by showing him two signs, verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Uh, Ran away quickly, screaming like a little girl would be better. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Moses, you're questioning All right, Moses, what is in your hand? And Moses simply sees a rod that he has probably carried for 40 years. Remember now, Moses has been in the wilderness in Midian for 40 years. He has started a family. He's a married man. He's a shepherd now. Forty years earlier, he was uh, an exile from Egypt for trying to deliver the children of Israel through his own personal ability, Killing an Egyptian, and then one day afterwards trying to break up a fight between two Jewish Hebrew men and being rejected by them as their deliverer. And then Pharaoh getting word that he had killed a. Egyptian. Now he is in exile. 40 years have passed. He is 80 years old. He has been a shepherd. And one morning on the vast side of the Midian desert, he stands and he sees this burning bush that is not consumed. He then goes up and begins to look for himself, only to discover that it is his personal meeting with God. And as God then begins to commission him in chapter 3... Moses, now, in the light of that commissioning, is beginning to respond in a manner of reluctancy, and so the Lord is trying to gently draw him to a place of confidence and a surety in who God is. And so Moses, what is in your hand? Well, oh, it's a rod. The rod that Moses had probably been familiar with for 40 years as he tended to the sheep, just a rod that he was so familiar with that it almost became part of his own being. You know, many people have that. I I know me personally, I can't go anywhere unless I throw my wedding ring on. I I, I feel naked without that. I I do. If I start to walk out, I'm going to the gym or something, and I'm like, oh, you know what, I don't have my ring on. And it's not because Dina's saying, where's your ring? It's just just become part of me. It's always meant to be there. I just know that. And his rod was something so familiar to him. And so God simply says, throw it down. It turns into a serpent, which for you and I, because the Hebrew word is somewhat vague in the exact specific nature of the serpent, we don't know what kind it was, but most speculate that it was a cobra that it turned into. The cobra was the symbol of power in Egypt. In fact, it was part of the actual headdress adornment that Pharaoh wore. There was a little cobra in the midst of it, and that was a symbol of power and strength. And God wanted to demonstrate to Moses that he could tame that power by taking it up by the tail, and once again it turned back into a rod. There are also hieroglyphics in Egypt that demonstrate and show to us that uh, the Egyptians were capable of making serpents into rigid items through hypnosis, of all things. There's actual hieroglyphics that show us that. And yet God is doing just the opposite here. He is taking a rod, an inanimate object, throwing it down, creating a living being, and then once again, as he picked it up, it once again became an inanimate object. God's showing his superiority in this particular sign and wonder. But, just to make sure, verse 6, Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said then, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like the other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even in these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Three examples of signs and wonders. Leprosy was all too common in Egypt at that time. In fact, the Egyptians had medical remedies for many conditions. But leprosy was one that the Egyptians just could do nothing about. Obviously, that was true all the way through the time of Jesus. Leprosy was one of those things. And in that demonstration, God demonstrated to Moses that I can harm and I can heal. I am that powerful. Eliminating any fears that Moses would have, either the power of Egypt itself the power over leprosy itself, and then finally the power over the Nile River, which was the center of life and productivity there in Egypt. I am giving you these three signs that you may establish your authority before the children of Israel. These will be my voice, Moses, to them, to encourage them, and to help them believe that I have sent you, as one had wrote about this, Israel is to be confronted by God through the voice of His word and the voice of His miracles. This indicates that there will be an appropriate significance that will attach itself to each one of these signs. So Moses, I'm giving you what you need to establish yourself credible before the children of Israel not only to allow them to believe that God had sent him, but allow he himself to trust that God is sending him. And I've given you these three. And of course now we see the introductions of signs and wonders in the Old Testament where God is intervening through these things. And the word there is that is used here for believe is a word that states more uh, expansively in, in Hebrew, meaning that this is my voice. If they are going to listen to your words, they need to respond. And they also have to respond to the signs in which I am showing them. Jesus did the exact same thing. Signs and wonders were used to establish who he was they were always used in a manner to glorify god and to draw people onto jesus that he may share the gospel of jesus christ and then coming to a place of saving faith in and through him alone signs and wonders when john the baptist was discouraged and sent someone to Jesus and asked them to ask and inquire of Jesus, Is he the one? Are you the one, Jesus? Or should we be looking for another? Jesus told that herald to go back to John the Baptist and remind John the Baptist of all the things that have happened. The blind see, the deaf can hear, the lame have leaped miracles have been rendered, signs and wonders. And the signs and wonders that are found here in the book of Exodus are very specifically directed uh, to be given for two purposes. Number one, that they may know that it is the Lord who is doing this. And number two, that they may fear the Lord. Let me give you some examples. Exodus seven seventeen. thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in your hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Or Exodus nine twenty nine and 30. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that they may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Or Exodus ten one through 2 Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and in your sons' sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt, my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Very purpose in their application. These signs and wonders were to testify to the knowing of God and the fear of the Lord, demonstrating His glory, His supremacy, and His majesty. Paul the Apostle warns us that signs and wonders can also be used in a deceptive manner, drawing people away from Jesus himself. They're called lying signs and wonders, and they will be performed in the last days by the one who is coming that the Bible calls the Antichrist, and it'll be, they'll be used to draw many away from the true and living Savior, the person of Christ. People will always run to signs and wonders. In fact, there was a time in the Christian church that I remember that people were going from one church to another. Whenever there was a miracle night or a signs and wonder night, they would just keep going, one right after another. In fact, we see that demonstrated in the Gospels. As long as Jesus was performing miracles, he had thousands around him. As soon as he began to teach theology and doctrine, they all scattered You know, the signs and wonders were great, great entertainment, making something out of nothing, healing, and and so forth. And yet, when it came to the truths that were behind those signs and wonders, they didn't want anything to do with it. The signs and wonders that we experience always need to be weighed in the light of Scripture. Always. If those signs and wonders are attached to anything but the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be greatly concerned. If signs and wonders are attached to a single person to validate him or her particular ministry, we should be gravely concerned. I believe that God can do the supernatural. I have no problem with that. But he will do so in accordance to his perfect will as he decides to do it, and it will always point to Jesus. It will always point to the gospel. It'll always do it for the furtherance of his glory and his kingdom. So I don't dismiss miracles, but I do, I do evaluate them because there is false amongst the true. And those false can take us away from God rather than drawing us to God. So in these introductions of signs and wonders... We see God demonstrating his true ability, his true power, etc. Now, there are limits to the signs and wonders that can be done falsely, and you can find those for your, yourself in the New Testament. But they will be done, and they will lead people astray. The other night, we watched a movie called The Great and Powerful Oz, a Disney classic. Somebody actually did a prequel to The Wizard of Oz. And uh, so. You know, I. It was in between you know my day's anniversary and birthday, so I said, okay, you know. So I watched it, and it was great because he got there, and there was all of this anticipation in what he was going to be able to do for them, and then they finally discovered that he really wasn't a real wizard. I'm totally going to give a spoiler here, so spoiler alert, okay? And so as he is doing his things, and as he is trying to free Oz from the tyranny of the wicked witches. All he could do was manufacture something that in and of itself wasn't true, but gave the effect of it being true, gave the sense that it was true. And it was effective, and the story uh, ended happily, etc. But again, lying signs and wonders can have a very dramatic appearance, and yet they can be very deceptive in their actual nature. God asks us to test the spirits. God tells us very clearly to walk in the light of discernment, and that discernment is governed by the word of God. So let's not dismiss miracles. But if a miracle will lead to anything other than the true person of Jesus Christ and the gospel that is found in the word of God, let's run from them rather than running to them. So Moses is given these three signs and wonders to encourage him, to bring him out of that gulf of vacillation in the pit of reluctancy. And yet Moses still isn't satisfied. Verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I, I'm not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken uh, to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses now, after getting past the what-ifs, is now looking to himself and his own personal deficiencies, which I'm not sure are actually accurate deficiencies. But Moses, being trained in the ways of Egypt, knew that any leader was going to have to be very articulate if he's going to be followed. And Moses didn't believe that was the case for him. He didn't believe that he was eloquent. Very interesting here, it says that I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, meaning I I just can't find the words that I want to use, and and I also can't put them together the way they should be put together. I'm not eloquent, Lord. I haven't been, and I am not now. Now, remember, Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years, He is there because of his failed attempt to deliver the children of Israel previously. At 40 years old, he thought in his youth he could do what he felt led to do, and yet he was very unsuccessful for doing so. And so now he has been chewing on it for 40 years, mulling it over undoubtedly day by day as he stood out there in the fields shepherding and watching over the sheep realizing that the pr- reason that he is standing here is because he tried to do something in and of himself and now God is asking him to go back. He is now 80 and he says, Lord, I just can't speak properly. It was also a concern for the disciples of Jesus. In fact, it's one of the promises that Jesus gave his disciples, allowing them to know not to be afraid when they stood before Uh, royalty and they stood before rulers and authorities knowing that it was going to be the holy spirit that was going to speak in and through them and give them the words that they needed see moses assumed that this inadequacy was some a a reason to uh, reject the commissioning of god but it's often in our weaknesses that god works the most It's not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. And at that moment that he is working through our weakness is the moment that we know it's God and not ourselves. So for God, it wasn't anything to be concerned with at all. Moses, uh, remember, uh, I'm the one that created the mouth. I think I know what I'm doing. Have I not been responsible, and a very difficult verse here, the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have I not? Says the Lord. Have I not done these things? Now go, I will teach you what you need to say. Again, reassuring Moses, trying to draw him out of that place of reluctancy. And we see God gently moving him through this, giving Moses those things that he needs. Some look at these as just mere excuses at why Moses didn't want to do what God was asking him to do. But I also believe that there's a degree of self-awareness within Moses that is showing him and telling him that the reason I've been here for 40 years is because I failed. I don't want to do this again. Stephen tells us in Acts 7.22 that Moses was actually uh, very well articulate in his speech. As Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, Stephen said, and was mighty in words and deeds. One commentator wrote this, Moses completely missed the message of God's name and God's miraculous power. I am is all that, is, that was needed in every circumstance of life. And it is foolish for us to argue I am not. If, I can, if God can turn rods into serpents and serpents into rods, if he can cause and cure leprosy, and if he can turn water into blood, then he can enable Moses to speak his words with power. And Moses was making the mistake of looking at himself instead of looking at God. The God who made us is able to use the gifts and abilities he has given to us to accomplish the task that he has assigned us. When people want to serve God, today in the church we have often given aptitude tests to help people know and to discover what gifts they may have. I have taken those aptitude tests. I've actually gone online and I've looked at those aptitude tests to see how accurate they are. Uh, they all have come back and says I should fill communion cups. And, um, and maybe that's true. But that being said, I have noticed that many of those aptitudes plays to the person's physical strengths rather than their spiritual ability. And I'm very concerned that an aptitude test is taken by an individual and they feel like, well, this must be it now, you know. This is what I can do, and I can't really do anything beyond that. And so I'm just going to look to fulfill what this aptitude test tells me that I can fulfill. Now, the first problem is that it's usually always geared towards the person's physical abilities. Secondly, it's often administered within the first three weeks of their Christianity. You know, that's a problem too. They haven't had time to grow or to mature or to allow God to begin to hone and to work in their lives to develop the person that they are ultimately going to be. I think that anyone in the hand of God can be used for mighty things. Anyone. It is not what we bring to the table that God is concerned about. It is what He is capable to do in and through us. And so that aptitude test tells me that I may only be apt to fill communion cups. But now that I am pastoring a church and have done so for these 17 years, I can then tell you that if that's all that I'm capable of doing, anything beyond that has to be to the glory of God and by his grace. Don't limit what you think God can do in and through your life based upon your own personal limitations. God can do so much more than you think. It is God who works in and through us for his good pleasure. So Moses finally then just comes to the point here in verse 13 where he asks God to choose another. But he said, O Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. And so he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, which you shall do the signs. God isn't doesn't become angry until Moses challenges God's decision. You know what, God? I, okay, thank you for the signs. Thank you for me now knowing that you've made my mouth. Please, Lord, just choose another. At that point, the anger of God is stirred against Moses. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say anger. I love this. Um, it's hot of nose. That's, be, God became hot of nose. It's a term for anger in Hebrew. He became hot of nose towards Moses because now this groundless opposition to God is now being responded, I've been patient. I've tried to gently draw you out. Fine, you are the man that I have called to do this, Moses. I will give you your assistant, your brother Aaron, which later becomes problematic. Aaron's the one that builds the calf. It is Aaron and Zipporah, his wife, that come against Moses and challenge his authority. But I will give you a complimentary supplement to allow you to speak the way you feel that you need to speak because you're not able to trust me to do it. I will give that to you. And I will allow you to do it. As one commentator wrote, Moses' groundless opposition angers God. Moses can think of no more good objections for God has met everyone point by point. So it's God's willing servant reveals the true nature of his heart, literally saying, send another, I beg you, by the hand of whom you will send, which is another delightful Hebraism for choose anybody but me, Lord. The lesson is plain here. God knows us better than we know ourselves, so we must trust Him and obey what He tells us to do. And when we tell God our weaknesses, we aren't sharing with Him anything that He already doesn't know. The will of God never leads you to do something where the power of God can't enable you to do it. So walk by faith in His promise. Again, the reluctancy of Moses vacillating between the two mindsets. Should I believe it? Should I reject it? No, he stays in a double-minded position vacillating between the two. Undoubtedly, there was part of him that wanted this to be true and he wanted his people delivered, etc. But he is still relishing in the idea of his failures and has been mulling over those failures for 40 years and now he is confronted with the reality that God may be sending him him back and undoubtedly he doesn't want to fail again. In the remainder of chapter 4, God encourages him five times as Moses now takes that step in faith to go and to do what God has asked him to do. The first is as he went back to Jethro in verse 18, his father-in-law asking for permission to go, which he needed to do so. Since Jethro was the patriarch of the family there in Midian, it was purpose that his permission must be given before his daughter and grandsons could be released to Moses and be taken back to Egypt And Jethro agrees. God encourages him again in 19 through 23, and you can read these on your own. Once again, God encourages him, showing him that he is moving in the right direction and continuously encourages him and assures him that he is going in the right direction. Verses 24 through 26 are some of the most difficult verses of this passage, and I will look at them with you because many have been uh, perplexed by what they say. And it came to pass on the way at at the encampment that the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to kill him. Wait a minute, what has happened? Then Sipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of their son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of circumcision. Time out, what the heck is going on there? He's on his way, and God looks to intervene and to kill him. Now, there are debates about what this means. Was Moses struck with an illness? It was on to death. We don't know exactly what the Lord had done at this point, but the Lord is displeased by something. But Zipporah seems to know exactly what it was. Their first son, Gershom, undoubtedly was circumcised right away. Now, the Jewish person, male child, needed to be circumcised on the eighth day to show and to represent that he truly was an Israelite, a Jewish person. You didn't become Jewish until you were circumcised. It was a symbol of the covenant relationship uh, between man and God, circumcision. But apparently his younger son, they didn't circumcise right away. So as they were moving, and though Moses was going to be the representation of the law to the Jewish people, he himself wasn't being obedient to it in every area. And so God said, wait up, stop right there. Knowing that his younger son wasn't circumcised, Zipporah circumcises him, and we don't know how old this child is, can you imagine that? Excuse me, son. God's about to kill your husband, uh, my my husband, and your father. I need to circumcise you. Okay. What? But they couldn't proceed in that type of hypocrisy, and Zipporah is upset about it. Now she, being a Midian, they didn't practice circumcision. They were monotheistic. She was a descendant of Abraham, but she and the Midians at that point most believed did not practice circumcision. And so this was a a, a repulsive practice to her, and yet she did it to be obedient to God. And as soon as they were, God allowed them to continue. Great lesson. Personal integrity matters. Personal integrity matters. How can we instruct others when we first ourselves are not subjected to what we are instructing others to do? Meaning, do it first. Be an example in all things. In verses 27 through 28, there's the arrival of Aaron, his brother, just as God had said. And then look at with me verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders and the children of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of his of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their afflictions, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Everything God said was going to happen, happened. Encouraging and assuring Moses. The only way you and I are going to be moved out of that gulf of reluctancy is by assurance. Moses' reluctancy, I believe, had to do with him not fully understanding his own failures and inabilities. His own failures and inabilities were meant to be life lessons to him, showing him that he couldn't do it. It would be God that was going to do it in and through him. But Moses saw them as limitations. Moses then began to qualify and to filter the words of God through the lenses or through the the listening filters of his own inabilities. God would say something to him, but when Moses heard it, it immediately was met with the reminder of his own ability, his own failure. And the truth that was contained in what God had spoken to him then was dissipated because Moses couldn't hear what God was actually saying. Because again, he was living in the realm of his experience rather than the word of God. Let me clarify what I mean by that. Today, when truth is established by a person, you will discover quickly. It is discovered because someone has personally experienced it. Yesterday was a day where storms blew through here pretty quickly. And there were some areas that got tornadoes. There are other areas that did not get tornadoes. And there are some who say, oh, the weather was absolutely terrible. And the other person says, oh, it didn't even rain here a little bit. Now, they may believe that the tornadoes occurred, but it wasn't real to them because it didn't occur to them. Does this make sense? We say something to someone about an experience that we have had with God, and they say, good for you. I'm glad it worked for you. I'm glad that that has happened for you. They're basically saying, I haven't experienced it. So Moses is taking his experiences, and God is speaking to him, and his experiences are outweighing what God is saying to him. I failed at 40. I am now 80. I don't speak well. I've been following sheep around for 40 years. I'm out of the game, Lord. I was raised in Egypt, but I have no idea what's going on there now. And he's been mulling his failures for 40 years. They are fresh in his mind. They are fresh in his heart. And now being approached by God in such a dramatic way, he still cannot comprehend what God is actually saying to him. Some may feel that Moses was just being humble, and I've heard that in the commentaries, and I've heard people say that in the teaching of this passage. Moses was just being humble. He was just responding to God in a humble manner. Humility never detracts from God's purpose. It always supplements it, always furthers it. It never detracts, never hinders God's momentum. When we reply to God, we can do it in a reluctant way of unbelief, Often limiting God to our own personal limitations. That's why so many people have a difficulty believing God today. I ask you a question this morning and I want you to write this down. You believe in God, but do you believe God? Do the promises of His word supersede your own personal experiences? Do the promises of his word supersede your own personal experience in what you are going to rely on as truth, as certainty? Many Christians struggle here in America today because they say, well, I've relied on the promises of God and things didn't work out the way I wanted them to. And so now I can't rely on, wait a minute. God says he'll supply all of your needs, but he doesn't say how he's going to supply all of your needs. Someone may come to me and say, Pastor Eric, I'm low on funds. I can't make my bills. And I say, well, let's pray to God because God will supply all of your needs. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. So we pray and ask God to provide all of this gentleman's needs. And then the following week he comes back and I can tell he is downtrodden and I can tell that something hasn't gone well. And he, said to me, he comes back and he says, God didn't provide my needs. What? God didn't provide my means. I waited all week, and the money never came. I was offered a job, though, but the money never came. What? Wake up. That was God right there. God's not in the welfare business. Got to work for a living. He missed it. He couldn't see that God was providing the way God thought that he should provide. So do the promises of God supersede our own personal experiences? Those experiences that would say that God isn't there, those experiences that would maybe tell us that God doesn't care, etc. Does his word supersede our own personal experiences? See, we can react in reluctancy to what God has said, or we can react recklessly to what God has said. Reluctancy, limiting God to our own personal ability, may appear as humility on the surface. But I disagree, because it's still too much attention to yourself, right? If I'm limiting what God can do based upon my own personal abilities, how is that humility? It's still all about me, right? And God being able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in and through me based upon my own personal abilities. And when I can't do it, therefore I believe that God can't do it. That's not humility. It is still pride because it's all about you. And that's where Moses was. All of his life experiences, he couldn't believe and trust God at this point. But then there's also a recklessness. Abraham was given a promise by God, right? And then years went by and that promise wasn't fulfilled and Abraham decided to do it himself through his handmaiden, Hagar. That's reckless. Getting ahead and presumptuously getting ahead of God. Thinking that I can do it. Or Peter, even after being told by God that he would deny him three times, absolutely refused that that could be possibly true. That's reckless. And you can get ahead of God. Your own abilities then may supersede that of God and saying, God, thank you. I appreciate the permission. I'll take care of it now. That's recklessness. God doesn't want us to live in reluctance and he doesn't want us to proceed reckless. He wants us to walk with him and allow him to work in and through us to fulfill his good pleasure. Let me read this for you. Was Moses manifesting an attitude of pride or true humility? Forty years before, he felt perfectly adequate to face the enemy and act on behalf of his people. But now he's backing off and professing himself to be a worthless failure. But humility isn't thinking poorly of ourselves. It's simply not thinking of ourselves at all, but making God everything. The humble servant thinks only of God's will and God's glory, not his or her own inadequacies, success or failure. Moses was clothing his pride and unbelief in a hollow confession of weakness. As we can be presumptuous, running ahead of God, thinking that we can fulfill what God would have us to fulfill. That is my goal for our message today. I want to move you out of that place of reluctancy to allow you that assurance. And that assurance is found when we see and understand the faithfulness of God, and that faithfulness is demonstrated on every page of this book. It is not all about us, it's all about God. And as God leads you and moves you, do not be reluctant, do not be reckless. Just be responsive and allow God to lead you where he would lead you to go.